how you doing on your Easter punch card? Have you been able to click all the, all the markings off? Uh, do you have some pastel color on? Did you go out and get a, a, a new Easter outfit? Picked up a flower, planted one, hug an Easter bunny, have an Easter meal, maybe that's still to come. Dyed eggs, participate in the egg hunt. You know, you might notice that the color scheme, there are actually four different times you can go to church in Easter, work, Easter week. Palm Sunday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. If you're here this morning, punch the card. You know, there's a bonus card for how many times you say he has, ri- he has risen or how many times you respond to that. You can get a free donut, an extra donut to take home with you. <laughs> so here's the question around that. Would it still feel like Easter if we happen to go without some of our traditions? If some of our traditions are taken away, would it still feel like Easter? Well, today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the thing that is at the very heart of Easter, the thing that, that defines Easter, the, the very substance of Easter. It is the crescendo, I believe, in the story of the life of Jesus. In fact, one might even say that it's the shocker in the story. You know, it's amazing that Jesus, when he was just a child, was visited by wise men from the east. Yes, it's, it's just hard to even grasp that Jesus once walked on water or, or that he healed a leper or, or all the other stories. Even when we get to the crucifixion, that Jesus died on a cross for us and he paid his, he gave his life that we might live. Yes, indeed, it's hard. We cannot even fathom the story without the crucifixion. And yet the, the crescendo, the shocker, comes on that Easter morning when the tomb was empty. A few years back, I think I may have even mentioned this before, but a few years back, Vicky and I went to Branson with my dad and his wife, and we went and saw Jesus, the, not actually Jesus, but the, the play Jesus, uh, it always sounded weird to me that, go to Branson and see Jesus. Um, it's a great marketing ploy. But we went and saw the, uh, the play. It's a beautiful uh, facility, and they do all the uh, special effects and the lighting, and it's just tremendous. Uh, they uh, get to that part of the story where they, they're going to tell you about the resurrection. They chose Matthew's version of the story, and so in Matthew's version, an angel comes and sits upon the rock. And so, sure enough, there was an angel that flew over our heads on a wire and, and came and sat on the rock. And, and the lights changed, and there was an earthquake in the room, and they just it felt all these things. But then they made the tomb transparent. And something that I've always held on to as a mystery, they gave a picture to. And you can't unsee it once you've seen it. And they show you their interpretation of what happened in that moment when Jesus was resurrected. For me, I find that there's such depth and curiosity and wonder when that moment is left a little undefined. What would 
the resurrection actually look like? The Bible doesn't tell us exactly, but it does talk about the resurrection. There is some information, some data is provided. And so today we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about the resurrection and its impact, especially as it connects to our own experience of resurrection. Our passage is a short one. It is uh, from the 15th chapter of the letter of 1 Corinthians. And by the way, in your handout today, you were given a study guide, and we always provide one of those, but this week it actually has the the printout of the whole of chapter 15 from 1 Corinthians in it. And if you're participating at home, you can always go to our, the front page of our website, and at the very top there are these links, and you can download not only the announcement sheet, but the study guide as well. And if you want to do that now, even as you're watching, feel free to do that. It will make following along easier, whether it's in your own Bible or the, one, the printout we've provided. So let's go ahead and this morning we will receive the Word of God. It goes like this. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. May God bless the reading of His Word and may God bless us as we come under His Word today. So there are two halves to this one verse, and we'll spend uh, a little bit of our uh, time first in the first half and then on to the second half. Let's begin with that first half. In Adam, all die. Now, this is historically true. Uh, For Paul, Adam is very much a real character, and, and we go back into time in that first couple, those that first expression of creation of, of humans that that we tell, we know the story from Genesis that, that there's Adam and Eve and, and they're in the garden with God and God had created this opportunity for intimacy between humans and God, that God would walk amongst them. And God set a boundary and Adam and Eve went against that boundary. And when that happened, not only did it cause a, a, a a very negative consequence for Adam and Eve, but all of us inherited something through that. It changed changed reality for all of us. And death came into our midst. And since the time of Adam, for all of humanity, we have experienced death. There's a couple stories in the Old Testament of one of Enoch and one of Elijah that seem to have gone from being alive in this world to being alive in God's presence. But apart from Enoch and Elijah, it's historically true, everybody has died. Everybody's died. There's no like a corner of the planet where, shh, don't tell anybody, on our little island, we've been alive forever. It's also humanly true. It's humanly true. It turns out that our DNA mutates, that our cells stop dividing and that there are byproducts. Whenever you hear the word byproducts, you get a little squeamish. There are byproducts from cellular activity that build up in our bodies and our bodies just no longer function the way. It's historically true that people don't live forever. It's humanly true that they don't live forever. I know in my own experience that 
that something has happened in the past couple of years where my eyebrows have just taken over. It's like, it's like a, a lawn rightly fertilized in spring, and they're just like climbing, and I have to take a weed whacker, a mower to them, and, and this happens to humans. So we know it's theologically true. We know it happened to Adam and Eve. We know it's historically true. We know it's humanly true. We die. We might fight against it. We might try to find the fountain of youth. We might join the Ponce de Leon fan club. But no matter what we do, we die. And this was true for Jesus. He died too. He didn't die of old age. We know that. He willingly gave himself up, but he was subdued subjected to just horrible treatment, horrible treatment. And through the, just the abuse his body received, his life in this world came to an end. He died dead, a hard stop. He was killed. He was a corpse. The fully God, fully human, was fully dead. And this had, if this had been the end of the story, we know that the Creator would no longer create. You know in, in Colossians where it says that uh, uh, through him all things were created or have been created. And by him and for him all things were created. So if Jesus died and that was it, Jesus would no longer create. That there would be the dis disintegration of all things. In that same passage we're told that in Jesus all things hold together. And if Jesus is dead, he is no longer holding all things together. We know, too, that the church would have no head. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, would no, no longer reign. The fullness of God in him would be no more. All this would be true if the crucifixion was the end of the story. There were some more, there's some more pragmatic things that would have come along, too. Jesus would have been proven to be a liar. He had said, he had taught that he would... Uh, be raised again on the third day. Not only Jesus, but then Paul. Paul, in our own chapter, the chapter that we have uh, before us in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, he says, listen, if it didn't happen, if the resurrection didn't happen, if, if it all ended with the crucifixion, then Paul would have been misrepresenting God. And Paul's preaching would have been in vain, as would be our faith. If we look at verse 17 of our chapter, we find these words, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. In Adam all died. And it was true of Christ. It was true of Jesus. He died. He was dead. And if that's the end of the story, then we are without hope. It turns out that humanity's hope, humanity's hope rides on the reality of the resurrection. Humanity's hope rides on the reality of the resurrection. So let's go to the second half of the verse. In Christ, all shall be made alive. Now, I know. I, I'm, I'm just going to go out on a limb. I know that everybody in this room is good at something. Even right now, I would ask you, you picture the thing you're good at. 
Maybe you're good at a certain sport, or maybe you're good at cooking, or maybe you're really good at listening, or, or, or leading, or, or whatever it is, but you're good at something. And so whatever that thing that you are good at, if you had to coach somebody else in it, what would you share as first importance? What, what, would, what would you want to make sure you got over clearly to the other person so that they would understand what it is to do the very thing you're good at? Well, Paul has his understanding of first importance. In fact, it was the verses that Sasha read this morning, uh, chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. Listen to what he says here. He goes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. If you want to get first important stuff in, in Christianity, this is it. Jesus died. Jesus died. But that wasn't the end of the story. Jesus was raised to new life. Death was not his end. Paul then provides some data to back up his statement. He makes a list of, he, of people that Jesus actually revealed himself to after he was risen. He goes, listen, Jesus appeared to Cephas, Peter. He also appeared to the twelve. That was still the way he talked about him, even though Judas had, was no longer part of the picture. So he appeared to Peter. He appeared to the twelve. He makes a statement that, that Jesus appeared to 500 people at one time. We don't have other stories about that, but Jesus appeared to those 500 people at one time. And Paul goes on to say, listen, and some of them are still alive, which is to say you could ask them yourself. Paul says also that Jesus appeared to James and to the rest of the apostles, the other leaders in the church. And, and then he goes, and then as to one untimely born, uh, born he also appeared to me, to Paul. Jesus showed himself. Now, historians won't receive that as proof. There's something about, if we're going to make the, uh, the layout of history, that, that historians like to be able to say, we've seen this happen a number of times. This is not an outlier. This that in, in the whole scope of, of the experience of creation or the experience of the cosmos, that we tend to see things happen again, and, and there's patterns that develop. And so from a, a historical perspective, from a historian's perspective, there's a challenge here. And if we were to take a, a scientific approach, we would equally be challenged. That, that as scientists, we like to be able to say, here's our, our hypothesis, and let's run that test again, or let's test it another way, and let's come up with a conclusion. So from a, a historian's perspective or a scientist's perspective, we're going to be challenged in this situation. So how do we know this to be true? It turns out that in God's scheme of things, in God's equation, that we would know this to be true by faith, that God moves in our midst and does something in our hearts and opens up our minds that we would be ones who would look upon the teaching of Scripture and go, that's right, that's true. Now, the problem in Corinth was that some were saying there is no resurrection of the dead, speaking mostly about humans, that, that humans, that their experience of being a Christian would include that there would be no resurrection of the dead. 
at all. So Paul has a response for them. And he connects the resurrection of Jesus with the resurrection of the rest of us. And in his response, he provides for us the when, the how, and the why. So let's look at verse 23, and we'll talk about the when. This is what Paul says. He writes, but each in his own order. He says, Christ, the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So for Jesus, he's already been resurrected. He's already the first fruits of that whole journey. His resurrection has taken place. Well, then how about for the rest of us? Paul says that will take place when Jesus returns. And it's not until then that that resurrection happens. Which may bring up some questions for some of us. We might be wondering, well, what happens now? What happened to someone I loved? What, what, what's happened to people when they have died? It brings up the whole question about the intermediate state. And have you ever experienced something in Scripture where you go, I would like more information on that? This is one of those areas for me. I would like more information on that. But Paul does provide some information. There are at least a couple places where Paul, just by his writing, gives us an indication of what takes place during this time. In the other letter we have that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, in chapter 5, verse 8 of 2 Corinthians, and also in a place in Philippians, chapter 1, verse 23, Paul indicates that there's this choice of being in this life or to be with Christ, and that if he's not in this life, he's with Christ. And so if this life were to come to an end, he would be with Christ. We don't know what that looks like. We don't know exactly what all that means, but we do know that there is this life and being with Christ after this life. There's a, another writing of Paul's where he writes the church of, in Rome, and he makes this incredible statement. He talks about that uh, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And he includes in his list of all the things that might possibly we could consider that would separate us from God's love. He makes this whole list, and he includes death and life. That even in death and in life, but our focus, that even in death, that even death itself cannot separate us from the love of Christ. So in this intermediate state, in this time between now and the resurrection, the resurrection of all those who follow Christ, that we can know this, that, that there will never be a time where we are beyond God's love. And that to go from this world, we still go into being with Christ. We might ask, well, in this intermediate time, what is Jesus up to? What is he doing? Well, it turns out from our text, we find out that Jesus is in the process of subjecting all things to himself. In verse 24 and 25, it reads, then comes the end when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until, all has been, all, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That's the time between now and when Christ returns. The when? Jesus has already been resurrected. The rest of us? What's the extension of Easter to the rest of those who follow Christ when he returns? 
so the how. And for this, we'll go back to verse 35. Paul writes, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Now, I can't remember if I've mentioned this to you all or not before, but my wife loves zombie movies. It's true, she's a big fan. She doesn't like the ones that are just all gore and yuck, but she loves a good zombie story. Do you know that not every zombie movie uh, tells the exact same story? There seems to be a difference in levels of creativity of how people become zombies. World War Z, it's a virus. Yeah, it seems to be straightforward. We can all imagine how a virus might change humanity into zombies. In Stephen King's movie Cell, it, there's this phone call that goes out to all humanity at the same time. And if you answer that call, there's some kind of a signal that goes through and your mind is changed. And it gives you shivers. Don't answer calls. You don't know who they're from. There's a, movie, a zombie movie by Peter Jackson. And in that movie, uh, um, it's caused by a bite from a rat monkey. And by the way, the rat monkey has his own backstory, but we won't go into that now. There's actually a movie called Pontypool. It's a Canadian zombie uh, film. Who thought Canadians would even write about zombies? It's actually, in that film, it's actually the English language that causes it to happen. So when we think of the resurrection and the how, how does that happen? Is there a rat monkey involved? Thankfully, the resurrection has nothing to do with zombies and is way more wholesome. Here's what Paul says concerning the how. If you're following along in your sheet, bring your attention to verse 35 again. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And Paul's retort is, you foolish person, what you sow, and here he gives an analogy. He goes, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. In other words, picture yourself planting a seed, that there's something that does not look like the plant itself, and yet it goes into the ground, and he's making an analogy, and so don't play analogies all the way out, but it goes into the ground, much like if someone dies, that they would go into a tomb, and then what comes out on the other side would be something that God intends it to be. Then if you jump down to verse 42, and we'll pick it up there. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown, and here he qualifies it, because what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And here we want to be careful with the language that we're not thinking of something like, like with Plato or uh, that Platonic thought of where uh, material is bad and spirit is good. And, and so really that Plato would want to make a distinction between what is bodily and what is spirit. That's not what's happening here. 
much more so think in terms of the Holy Spirit being able to do something and that there's still a physicality to the body, that there is a a physical body, but, but it's been worked by the Spirit of God. If it is sown a natural body, is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. In other words, we will become like what Christ is now. How? How? It'll be the work of God. God will achieve this for us. And then along with the when and the, the how, Paul also provides a why. Look at verse 50. And we'll also pick up something from 54 and following. In verse 50, it reads this. I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, that if we were left to ourselves, we could not inherit the very thing that God wants to give us. That in our perishable state, in our weak state, we can't inherit all that God intends for us. Then down in 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Without resurrection, in our current state, we could not inherit the kingdom of God. Without the resurrection, we lose out on the victory. The why? Because God wants us to have victory. The why of the resurrection is because God wants us to have victory. God wants us to enjoy being with him in his kingdom forevermore. Let me ask you then, how satisfying do you find these answers which Paul gives You know, this, for some of us, this is stuff we simply don't want to think about. We would rather just have the good old stories and we'll move on and we just won't think about it that much. Others of us will be left, we want more proof. This is so hard. Can't you give me more information? And so steps in the role of Easter faith. Another word for Easter faith is Easter impact. Look at verse 58. Here's how Paul puts the impact. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. This is the power of ultimate hope. Humanity's hope rides on the reality of the resurrection. This is our hope, our destination, with God, in Christ, forevermore. When I was growing up, we went horseback riding every now and then. And maybe if you've ever been to a place where you rent horses and you go out on a, on a trail ride, you've, you've experienced this. When the horse is going away from the barn and doesn't know where its destination is, it's pokey and slow and just not paying attention. It's not really listening to a poor rider like myself and but you turn that nose around, point it toward the barn, and it knows, and it picks up speed. And because it knows where where home is, hay is. Where home is, hay is. And so it is for us that with the promise of the resurrection, based on the resurrection of Christ, we know our home. We know where we're going, where home is, hay is. And when we go home with Christ, we will be in his kingdom 
the power of ultimate hope. This is Easter's impact. Hope that empowers us to be steadfast. Hope that empowers us to be immovable, that we stay in Christ. Hope that empowers us to be abounding in work because we know where we're going. So this is the true Easter punch card. Have we remembered the empty tomb? Check. Have we remembered Christ is the first fruits? Absolutely. Have we remembered our future resurrection is secured? Check. Are we empowered to be steadfast in our faith? Yes. Are we empowered to be immovable in our faith? Absolutely. Are we empowered through Christ's resurrection to be abounding in works? Absolutely. Let's pray together. Father, in your good plan in all of creation, where you set in motion this huge universe in which we live, all things exist for your glory. And in your self-glorification, you have caused it to be that, that we would be in a relationship with you through Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross in our place, and that death could not hold him back. But through your power, through your work, he was raised. And in his resurrection, we have hope for our own resurrection. The promise of eternity with you, where we go from being perishable to imperishable. And so we pray for one another on this Easter that we would receive what you have given. That indeed we would find ourselves steadfast, immovable, abounding in work, because of what you have done in our lives, because of what you have done through Jesus Christ. We give ourselves to you. We give ourselves to you in praise and in gratitude. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.